Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we gather today with a very, very familiar passage of scripture called the parable of the good, uh, of the good Samaritan. And uh, oftentimes when this text is preached, there's a lot of emphasis on the story. And I think that's okay. But today I want to deal with the context. Context is just why is this story right here? What's going on in this story? And I think we find out when we look at the 25th verse that Jesus is witnessing to a lawyer, an expert. Pretty much a dude who, who knows the law. And so in the 25th verse, we see then, 25th verse, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question that is posed is what I consider to be the ultimate gospel question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so I believe that the theme is centered around this question that this lawyer, this expert in the law, asked Jesus. He didn't ask him with sincerity. He asked him kind of to test him. He was kind of a dude who knew the law and he knew what he was talking about and he wanted to test Jesus because he's seen Jesus operating, but Jesus wasn't from where he was from. He was a Jew who grew up knowing the Shema, knowing the law, knowing the Old Testament, and he figured Jesus is just a dude who got some fame right now. Don't really know what he's doing. He's doing miracles. He's tricking people. Let me test him and see what he know. And Jesus, man, a brother was saying Jesus is just beautiful. If you just look at Jesus in the scriptures, he is beautiful. He's wise. He asks in 26 verse, what is written in the law? He asks, and he not only asks that, he says, how do you read it? The question is, how do you interpret the law? This is an important question because for Jews, when they read the law, they read it as instructions for God, from God, yes, but they often read it as a guide for their morality. This is how you should behave. And what they would do is they would take the law and minimize it to bring it down. See, two things you have to do if you're going to look at the law and when you misinterpret it and think that when you hear instructions from God in the law that I have to do it, you, can, you either do two, one, you do two things. You bring the law down and you bring yourself up to meet that standard. And so this is what the Jews often did. He says, how do you read it? Because when you read the law, as we know, see, Luke is a, is a gospel where we get in its infancy stage salvation. And the way Jesus uses the law is to confront people about their sin. He says, how do you read it? And he answered correctly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Well, 
He said, do it. Since you know it, now do it. This is a challenge. As Christians, a lot of times we know, but the question is, how well do we do? And so for him, he says, do it now. This is a challenge because he thinks he's already doing it. But I want to, here's, here's something that the law is meant to do. The law is meant to, number one, show his sinfulness. Show his sinfulness. In Romans 3.20, we see this. Romans 3.20, please. Turn to Romans 3.20, if you would. Romans 3.20 says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the law, because the knowledge of sin comes from the law. This is Jesus' aim. He asks him, what does the law say? And it's immediately what is supposed to happen is he's supposed to be confronted with his shortcoming when it comes to the law. Another thing that the law should do is point him to the one that's standing before him which is Jesus. Now we know this because we have a fuller picture of the gospel as the scriptures go on in Galatians 3.24. It says the law should lead us to Jesus Christ. Well, let's go back to the text. Luke 10, Jesus in the 28th verse, you've answered correctly. He told him, do this and you will live. But this is not enough for this guy. In the 29th verse, he says, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, remember, I told you the ultimate gospel question is, how do I obtain eternal life? Now, here goes what I call the ultimate gospel issue. How am I justified before a holy God? Justification. Big theological word, but it simply means how does a sinner like me, like you, get right before a holy God who has already given us his standard and said this is how you should do and be and live and we don't do it, how can I be made right? Justified to me it simply means this, just as if I did everything right and just as if I never did anything wrong. This is what we have to, when we stand before holy God, we need to be justified. And so this man here trying to justify himself says, who is my neighbor? And I think he said, who is my neighbor? Because in his conscience, he know he kind of falls short in this area of loving neighbor. And the Jews all, they, they minimize this to a T, like often some of us do. They, he minimized love of neighbor to just those who are in his people group. He minimized it. I don't know if any of us do that. But to love a neighbor, then this is the ultimate, ultimate issue of justification because he's trying to justify himself. Anybody ever tried to do that, justify your behavior? Yeah, he tries to justify himself. Back at Luke. He says, Jesus, in the 30th verse, Jesus took up the question and said, now this is Jesus again being who he is. 
He's now about to give the story of the Good Samaritan, which a lot of emphasis is often put on this story because this Good Samaritan is uh, an extremely good dude. But it shows to me this story, a lavish love that I don't think anybody can really perform to perfection. Let's look at it. He says, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Won't have nothing to do with that. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion on him. Something welled up in him, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, bandaged his wounds. I don't know if this Samaritan just had stuff to bandage wounds walking around. One, one commentator said he might even had to rip his own clothes in order to bandage him up. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring in olive oil and wine. Stuff that was expensive in his days, wine and antiseptic, pouring it on his wounds. Then he put him on his own animal <laughs> while he walking alongside. He don't know this dude. Brought him to an end, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two days' worth of wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This is extravagant love. Now, many people go into details, and I'm not going to go here, but just know, this is an extravagant love for a stranger. One passed by Another passed by and one shows love. Jesus asked in 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And here goes this lawyer, this expert, who was smart enough to know he can't get around answering. He said the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. This is, this is amazing because I think what this proves is that this guy, this expert, had a hard heart. Why do I say this? Well, the Samaritans were people who were called half-breeds. They were hated by the Jews, but not only did the Jews hate them, they hated the Jews. And it goes back to 500 years ago from the text where the Samaritans were a mixed breed of people who were exiled, Jews who were exiled, went into another country and intermingled and married. And then you had these births and you got these exiles. But these exiles eventually returned to Jerusalem. But they were shunned. They were treated terribly. This man couldn't even, although he got the answer correct, he says the one who showed mercy to him. He couldn't even say the name Samaritan. He couldn't say the Samaritan who showed mercy to him. Interesting story. Now let's look at this. This, in fact, is Jesus witnessing to this man. Jesus showing compassion like he always did, just like he did with the rich young ruler who didn't want to give up his wealth, 
who wanted to ask the right question but didn't want to hear the right answer. He didn't want to give up his wealth. And the Bible says that he walked away. And the Bible first says Jesus loved him. I think, first of all, Jesus really has a love for him because as you notice in the scriptures, Jesus always knew what people was thinking. He know king of the universe, part man, half man, half God, 100% man and 100% God, I'm sorry, knew what he was thinking, knew he coming just to test him without sincerity. But Jesus still, I'm going to take the time to try to deal with him. And so this man, because what, what should have happened was he should have saw this lavish love that was demonstrated by the Samaritan and know that, man, I fall way short of that when it comes to the neighbor category. I might think because of my knowledge, sometimes because of knowledge, we think we know God. Now, he had that down pat. He knew the law, but he fell very short in the neighbor category. And Jesus, because he fell short, and he didn't want to surrender. Jesus says, well, just go and do the same. Now, just don't go and do the same tomorrow one time and think you've obeyed the law because the law says do it perfectly every day. Sometimes we have good moments where we feel like, hey, if I could just have my life freeze at that moment, if that was the ultimate act, I wish God would just judge me on that act, then I know I would be justified. That's not the case. The law is the law, not just one minute of the day, but the law is the law 24-7 of the day. So that means we must fulfill it 24-7 of the day. This is where the word justification is so sweet. Because the gospel is the fact that we did not fulfill this law, cannot fulfill this law. Who's going to fulfill it for us? And that's why I say turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. One thing that Jesus wanted to do with this man <laughs> is show him his sin and shut his mouth when it comes to justification. And this is something not just for this man, but for all of us. In Romans chapter 3 at verse 9, I won't read all the way up. I'll just read it 19. But what Paul does here in this Romans is a great picture of the gospel. It's the gospel that is brought to both Jews and Gentile. And Paul sums it up in Romans 3 by giving a 10-point indictment against humanity, where he talks about there is no one righteous, there is none who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have become worthless, there is no one who does what is good, their throat is an open grave, they deceive with their tongues, vipers venters under their lips, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the whole indictment against humanity. Now this, he says, now what we know that whatever the law says is speak to those who are subject to the law. So here's the, here's the thing, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. No self-justification. Everybody just shut up trying to justify yourself and understand you deserve only judgment. Harsh reality, but this is a part of the gospel. This is good news 
This is good news. Because once you stop trying to justify yourself, you look at how can I be justified? And let's go to 21 in Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Justification is about how right I am. Apart from the law, how can I be made right? Because 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God pre presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over former sins previously committed. I think this is one of the reasons why we try to justify ourselves like that dude, that expert, because oftentimes the Bible says the soul that sin must surely die. But when we sin, we don't die. We keep living. What's happening? God is passing over your sin in hopes that sooner or later you get it and turn to the one who really paid for your sin. That's why it says here. God presented him in the 26th verse, presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So I like the way the uh, ESV says so that he would be just. God has to punish sin so that he would be just and also the justifier. Your justification don't come from your mouth. It comes from God who calls you just. He wants to just defy us by being just and crushing his son. As we begin to close, I just want to look at four quick things. Why this is important. In Luke, understand this, in Luke, again, I believe the context is about the gospel. It's about salvation. And I think I can see that by the verse right before. Go back to Luke chapter 10. It's about seeing the Savior in front of him. This guy didn't see him. He says in 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see these things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He always used parables, not for his disciples to understand, but for others to not understand those whose hearts weren't ready to receive. A simple story that could be misconstrued because it takes the Spirit of God to see. And boy, it's a beautiful thing because in Luke's, it says, why Jesus' disciples ask, why do you speak in parables, Jesus? Just make it plain. He says, because for you it has been granted to know. So I pray that even with the fumbling of my words, you understand what I just said about justification, about gospel, because he can use broken, fragmented preaching and make you see what others cannot see that I have a need for Jesus and this guy couldn't even see it why do I think these things are important because for this church I pray I come to be a part of blueprint which is one church in two locations and the reality is not only is our churches suffering personally but all church 
Christendom. God has it. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. But churches are suffering. Pandemic, people we know and love walking away from the faith. And it's got a lot of leaders scratching their heads. What can I do to get butts in the seat? What can I do to bring people back to the faith? What can I do? And I think we got to do what's prescribed for us to do. Make Jesus who he is and just pray that people see him for who he is and come and bow before him. What do we want to do? We want to be a gospel proclaiming community. A gospel proclaiming community. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says this. And 15, this is a beautiful picture. God wants to make us a gospel-proclaiming community. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. A gospel-proclaiming community that is triumphant, that knows who we are. Then he wants us to be a gospel-rejoicing community. Gospel-rejoicing. Luke 10, 18, again, this is the context surrounded this, this um, parable. But Jesus' people, his disciples, he empowered. In Luke 10, he empowered 72 to go out, casting out demons and doing all kind of works. And we rejoice in that. We, we as Christians, we want to go out and we want to do all kind of works. But they came back like some of us do if we do good. We begin to take a little bit of credit, and that's the root of pride. And Jesus said in the 18th verse, he said, I watched Satan. This, this shows his eternalness. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning by talking like you talking. Man, we did a good thing. He says, I saw Satan fall because of this. He says, look, I have given you. This is the key, Christian believers, community. I have given you. The authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Psalm 51 says, restore the joy of my salvation. That's what I pray for, man. Psalm 51 is the psalm God used to bring me to faith. And I'm like, Lord, restore the joy because when I see people fall away, man, ain't a lot of joy. When I see people fragmented and arguing over this stuff and that stuff, supposedly within the body of Christ, ain't no joy. But we need the joy restored. How do we get the joy restored? Focus back on what's central. When I'm driving and I moved to Atlanta, I had my GPS. And, man, because I didn't have unlimited Wi-Fi, don't. And that mother, when I'm, when I'm trying to GPS somewhere and say, you know, it lost it, you lost the signal. And then something I got to push says recenter. Recenter. And I have to hit recenter. And then hopefully it recenter. I even got to stop sometime because, man, I ain't getting nothing. Recenter. But that's what we have to do as Christians. We want to be a gospel proclaiming community, we want to be a gospel rejoicing community. We want to be a gospel-serving community. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and 11, he says, serve out of the strength the Lord supplies. This is important for a community that's small and narrowed down because now most people who come are the ones serving. And the Bible says, serve out of the strength the Lord supplies. In Luke 10, the same text, we have the story of Mary and Martha. And Martha is serving. But I don't think she's serving out of the strength or she's gospel-centered serving. Why? Because she gets weary because she's looking at her sister that ain't serving. And sometimes we get like that. We get bitter and we get worn down from serving because we're looking at other people and we're saying they're not serving like this. But Jesus told her, he said, look, you, you're tripping. Mary, has, has, she's actually done the better thing. She's sitting at my feet because, yeah, I want you to serve. Yeah, I want you to be a servant community, but I don't want service to become God. Because if service become God, it becomes a bad thing. So just pause and worship so that you can get strength to do what God called you to do. And last but not least, a gospel, I want us to be a gospel restore community. We need to be restored. Look, I came over here, and number one, I, and I'll be honest, man, I really respect Sho. Sho has uh, shown a man. I've been knowing him for quite a long time, showed excellent character, and God called him over here to be a servant. And I'm like, man, this is a great opportunity to serve alongside a brother. But I said, man, the one thing about it is I'm not coming as somebody who's real strong and just coming to help serve them. And now we go, I'm coming broken too. I'm coming feeble. I'm coming in need. And I'm coming because not only do I want to see restoration within a community of faith that I love, I want to be a part of that restoration, not just from the serving side, but from the receiving side too. And I think that's the picture we get in 1 Corinthians 15. Everybody know about the Corinthian church. This was a church that was messed up. I mean, a lot was going on in that church. And Paul addressed a lot of issues. I mean, even to the point where son-in-law sleeping with mother-in-law. Like, it's crazy in there. And I think for a lot of churches that things are going on, maybe not to that extreme, but stuff is happening. Well, how does a church be restored? Paul comes and he says something powerful. He takes it back to the center. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1. He says, now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. Like, I want to make clear. I've addressed all these issues, but look, what clarity we need right now is the gospel. We need a fresh, new awakening of what we already receive. Because he says, the gospel I done already preached to you, which you done already received, on which you take your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, see, every issue, um, we can boil it down, is really a gospel of, for, I mean, is really an issue of forgetting what Christ has done. That's what it was with the children of Israel. It was all about they have forgotten the spirit of forgetfulness. They forgot what God had done for them. And he, they forgot. And sometimes we forget. Why? Because we get a title or because we start serving or because people know our name. We forget. 
And he says, I want you to hold to the message I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He said that's what's most important. And I think all of these scriptures tie into the fact that that text speaks about Jesus wanting a man to come to faith. Why do I believe that? Because all of Luke, all of parables, all the parables are really about salvation. I mean, we emphasize this good Samaritan, and we say a lot of things about social issues, and even that road, which was a real road that was dangerous, that a lot of robbing went on. We say, how can we redeem that road? Well, that is a good thing. I think we do need to redeem some things that are going on systemically. I think there is some social things that need to be righted. But even if social things become gospel, if the Jericho Road becomes the gospel that we center on, we would miss it. Because the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how we're empowered to deal with every issue and to see everything like we're supposed to see it. That's why even in that story, as I close, and you can stand to your feet because I'm going to pray. That'll help me close for real. <laughs> Even as I think about this Samaritan and this man that was beaten and was robbed, man, this, I believe, is a picture of the church. This lavish love that was shown out to one man from one man often isn't the case. Some people have incredible resources that they can do it all, but I've been a beneficiary in my Christian life of being that broken man. And it wasn't just one man. It was another woman. It was another man. And then they all come together as Christians and get me out the pit. That's what it takes as a gospel community. I think it's a picture of the lavish love of Jesus that can only be expressed through all the individuals that it makes up. All of us. And so my prayer is that we become that community. Not the famous community, not the hip church, not the best, but just a gospel-focused, gospel-centered, lavish love, get, receiving extreme mercy so that we can go and show the same mercy, not only to those outside, but to one another. That's my prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.